Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast on yet another snowy morning in Toronto. Boo to that, uh, but it's March 8th uh, nonetheless. We talk about the uh, Russia-Ukraine war, but we also get into uh, a lot to do with backpedaling a little bit on COVID. Over the last two years, you might imagine a lot of us have made some mistakes. A lot of us underestimated, overestimated things. And I'm all for frank conversations, accountability. Be honest about what you got wrong. Try not to get something wrong a second time. So we talk about that and how some doctors are stepping up and indeed doing that in front of a microphone as opposed to a private conversation. Uh, we will talk a lot about International Women's Day. I thought Sheba Siddiqui and I had a really important discussion about that uh, before the 6.30 news. And much, much more on the podcast on this, yes, International Women's Day. Celebrate the women in your life, but don't just treat it as a figurehead. Make their existence better. Do it in the workplace. Do it in terms of policy, okay? Practicality, words matter, yeah, but practicality and action matters much, much more. I think we've realized this over the last couple of years, have we not? Lots coming up. It's the Toronto Today podcast, and it starts now. I want to talk about um, sort of some walkbacks that you see happening. You ever see that meme where Homer Simpson backs into the shrubbery just slowly, like you can see him, right? Bald head, round face, big eyes, white shirt, blue pants. Backs right into the shrubs. Starting to see that uh, with some uh, COVID warriors, whether they actually have treated patients with COVID or not. Many of the prominent doctors who uh, you have heard from on radio, television and whatnot aren't in um, emergency rooms and they're not on uh, they're not treating pediatric cases, but they have lots of opinions on kids and masks and schools and all that stuff. By the way, I mentioned it last week, the numbers in Alberta where they unmasked in school at least gave you the option, okay, uh, of choice continue to fall. Hospitalizations haven't risen. ICUs haven't risen. Bottom line is, I think we probably could sense this, Omicron came to us like a freaking tidal wave, okay, um, like, like, like that you surf on, and uh, it showered over all of us. And some of us got it and didn't know it, got it and didn't get sick, got it and got kind of sick, and especially among us vaccinated people, um, it, uh, it, it left little impact. I know plenty of people that got it. Not one went to the hospital, but that doesn't mean that. Uh, but that's just an anecdotal experience. Let me give you some data uh, that's just in this morning from uh, Dr. Alistair Monroe, who is a pediatrician who does treat COVID patients, who looks at kids and is an infectious diseases specialist. Okay. Colin Furnessy is not. In Catalonia, Dr. Monroe notes a six-year-old, six-year-olds wore masks in school, five-year-olds did not. Masks on six, not on five. A brilliant team used this to see what effect mask wearing had on COVID-19 transmission. The finding, and there's tons of pages of this, so this is not some two-page, uh, you know, how your boss sometimes will say, give me a one-pager on who you think you are. I got that once about eight years ago. I'm like, oh boy, I, I don't know if I can describe it in one page and you may not want me to. No difference between the two groups. That was the finding. Conclusion, as Dr. Monroe writes, no meaningful effect on masking school children. Okay, we're starting to see a walk back to some extent. And I would make the case that there's different varieties of, of uh, judgment post-vaccination. I maintained after I got my second shot, and that would have been late June of 2021, 
that my immediate danger and that of my families had um, dissipated considerably. Nothing's 100%. There are still things worth mitigating risks for. There still is an element of community responsibility. But if you're back at the gym and your kid's playing soccer indoors and 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 you go to the movies, uh, both my kids went to see the Batman movie, my oldest son Saturday, and then I took my youngest son on Sunday. Well, you're out there. You're kind of out there or you're not. You are out there in doing things or you're hiding under the kitchen table. And I know that sounds like I'm being demeaning, but there's people that haven't left their house. There's people that haven't left their kids. The lowest risk group imaginable go over to other kids' houses and play. Again, I'm not living that life right now, but some are, okay? I'm trying not to judge. But as long as they don't get in the way about what I want to do with my uh, enhanced safety and uh and and, you know lack of of immediate danger we weren't sure a year ago at this time we all wanted the vaccine a year ago at this time okay we'd been through quite a a bit of a we'd been through quite a lot and certainly in december and january right december christmas time january um felt like COVID was everywhere and none of us very few of us were vaccinated in march i want to play you this from dr rochelle walensky she's the head of the cdc in the united states she was doing a chat about covid now she makes the point that um science is very uh you can debate what science is and you're never sure about science and science can take months and years um this isn't some hidden mic thing that she's talking to a group at uh, at a university near washington dc so this isn't some uh, hidden camera or hidden microphone scenario here's dr rochelle walensky you know we're going to lead with the science science is going to be the foundation of everything we do that is entirely true i think public heard that as science is foolproof science is black and white science is immediate and we get the answer and then we you know make the decision based on the answer and the truth is science is gray and science is not always immediate and it sometimes it takes months and years to actually find out the answer but you have to make you know decisions in a pandemic Okay, yeah, you do have to make decisions. Not all of them are right. I'm a huge fan of accountability, saying when you got things wrong. And we're starting to see some walkback among many who just proclaimed, well, the science is the science. You're either following the science or you're not. You're either with us or you're against us. Dr. Anthony Fauci, um, who you can't find with a, you know, honestly, with a compass and a sundial lately, he used to be everywhere, uh, fired back, if you remember, in uh, late 2021 against criticism, saying uh, if you were attacking him, you were attacking science. He said every guidance that Dr. Fauci had through the COVID pandemic was based on scientific evidence and his quote, science and truth are being attacked. And then he had the famous quote, I am science. But wait a minute. Dr. Walensky just said it's up to interpretation and it takes months and years to get a sense of it. She also documented the fact that she saw a television report on the effectiveness of the vaccine that she wanted to be true, but just didn't end up being that way. Hey, join the club. We all felt that way about it. Here's more from her. 95 percent effective on the vaccine. So many of us wanted to be hopeful. So many of us wanted to say, OK, this is our ticket out right now. We're done. Um, So I think we had perhaps too little caution and too much optimism um, for some good things that came our way. I I really do. I I think all of us wanted this to be done. Nobody said waning when, when, you know, Mm -hmm. oh, this vaccine's going to work. Oh, well, (laughs) maybe it'll work. It'll wear off. Right. 
immunity wanes, okay? Immunity from the vaccine effectiveness ends up waning, which is why some people have needed uh, a second, a shot, a third shot. Some people aren't real eager to go and get a fourth. Some parents like myself haven't been eager and haven't stepped up and gotten their teenage boys a third shot. I That may happen later in the summer. That may happen in the fall. It hasn't happened yet. And when we talk about, well, until everybody ends up getting vaccinated, there are parents that aren't going to vaccinate four-year-olds. There are parents that aren't going to vaccinate eight-year-olds. And I've always maintained this. And I was out on that tree branch when it felt a little, a little, you know, dangerous to be out there saying it should be a choice for younger kids. The 12 plus, I almost understood it for high schools, for amateur sports, for indoor sports. I almost understood it. And our household would have done it anyway. Most households have more households have than have not. I saw this yesterday on Sky. So it's not like I'm seeing it on some, uh, you know, hard right website. Uh, Here's the headline. COVID-19 expert claims he was told to correct his views after criticizing implausible graphs shown during official briefing. Professor Mark Wolhouse had been advising the UK government about infectious diseases for a quarter century. And he says plain common sense, quote, end quote, was a, quote, casualty of the crisis, end quote. So this senior epidemiologist was told, correct your views, correct your views. He criticized what he saw as a graph. He's also apologized to his daughter, whose generation has been so badly served by his own. And he believes closing schools was morally wrong. And if you want to look at the data, it's right there for you. On this International Women's Day, closing schools in Ontario, where we've lost more school days, who who did this disproportionately impact? Poor rather than rich, women rather than men, people of color rather than white people. All that is documented, okay? All that is there for the taking. And many of the uh, of, of the sort of snooty snoot TV doctors and academics haven't exactly acknowledged that, have they? Among the other things, like the vaccines are incredibly effective. They are. I'm a huge fan of the vaccines, but they do wane over time. I'm a huge fan of documenting acquired immunity. Why would anybody who's 20, who's already had two shots, who recovered from COVID, be mandated by a university or a workplace or anywhere to go and get a third shot? And many people are seeing this exactly the same way. I want to play you a clip from a doctor named Joseph Freeman. He's an emergency room physician, and uh, they had a news conference yesterday, and he made a uh, admission that they'd made a mistake. This guy is treating COVID patients on a regular basis. He's also based in Louisiana. Do you remember some of the harrowing scenes in Louisiana when people weren't being smart about this and getting vaccinated? Their healthcare system exploded. Okay, their healthcare system blew up in some of those southern states, Louisiana, Mississippi. Yeah, Florida. I know we're praising a lot of what Florida might be doing in terms of being open, but they made some huge mistakes prior to vaccination. But this is not a one size fits all. Hey, this country did great. This country didn't. Sweden has lower deaths and lower ICUs per 100,000 people than Canada does and has so for a long period of time. But there's a lot of people a little slow to catch up to that actual statistic. Like it's like they Googled something and found it in April of 2021 when it might have been true before vaccination. And I've changed a lot of my opinions. I've evolved with the times post vaccination. I think you can tell that that's the case. Here's what Joseph Freeman said yesterday in terms of the data mattering when it comes to decisions and not just sticking your digging your heels into the dirt 
and sticking with what the science tried to quote unquote tell you in 2021. If the policies didn't make a big difference and they only caused harm, then you have to start rethinking what we're doing. And you have to take the data that, that we're, that's clearly in front of us. And if it is only causing harm and at best can only save few, we need to think about it because if at best, right, an aggressive lockdown policy, imagine it reduced hospitalizations death by 20%. Then maybe we could come here and debate is that is the harms that are caused by those lockdowns worth that benefit? The reality is hospitalizations and deaths were not reduced by 20% by any policies. And because if they were, we would have had studies at this point that would have been able to consistently identify that. And that just has not occurred at all. Isn't that amazing? Like the rarest of things in 2021 or on the Internet or in the media, someone actually admitting that they were wrong about something. That takes guts. I give full kudos, full credit to Dr. Freeman here. He went on and suggested more about what he got wrong at the time and place that he got it wrong. We want to continue like a public policy that's obviously producing large harms and offering only a minimal benefit at best. That's currently unmeasurable. Personally, I would like to apologize to uh, the three other scientists sitting with me here on Zoom the proponents of the Barrington Declaration, because I initially I did think you all were crazy or dumb, or maybe you just didn't understand what I was seeing. But I, I now realize, actually, I'm sorry, because I believe now you guys were correct. And um, and you were correct from the beginning. And I, and I wish that more people, including myself, had realized that sooner. He goes further than I would on it. I was absolutely hesitant about Great Barrington Declaration and some of their proclamations and concepts early days. Pre-vaccination, it seemed like a herd immunity thing that was meant to be a giant uh, science experiment that was going to just flatten our most vulnerable people. And those are the people we need to be considering the most and still should. The immunocompromised, uh, those that are uh, that, that have multiple comorbidities. And yes, Older people, the older you are, the more susceptible you are, based on the numbers, to a bad outcome. All that is true. But post-vaccination, we've seen a different story here. We've seen a uh, rise to prominence of those who documented uh, and, and backed the Great Barrington Declaration. I wouldn't have been for it without the vaccines. Let me say that very, very clearly. And there's still policies out there, Florida's, Texas's, that were way, 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 way too cavalier for me to ever endorse at the given time. But we are, quote unquote, closing the curtain on a lot of this COVID theater. Remember cloth masks? Well, they were just brilliant. Almost as important as the vaccine, said some doctors. And then all of a sudden, Omicron came and they were described as useless. You got to up your mask game and mask harder. Okay, when exactly did you realize that? And when you did realize that, why didn't you tell us that in the first place? So I give I give this doctor a ton of credit for stepping up. Others will be doing so if they want to sleep well at night for in the next seven, eight months. Others will do just what the good doctor you heard there just did. And they should do it in Toronto and they should do it in Ontario. Gas prices in world countries, U.S. dollars per liter. Does that make sense? Do some conversion rates. I, I can be your human calculator. We're paying this morning in, in Ontario $1.27 US for a liter of gas. 
Okay, we agree. Dollar twenty-seven U.S. per liter of gas. The Netherlands tops the world at two forty-one U.S. a liter per gas, twice as much. So imagine three dollars and sixty cents Canadian or so, more than that, but three sixty-five Canadian uh, per liter. Italy pays much, much more, almost where the Netherlands are. Germany, France. You ever got gas in in uh, the United Kingdom? It's been like that. It, it they basically have paid uh, three quarters more per liter always and now is no different oh you probably wonder what they're paying right now in russia how's 65 cents a liter u.s dollars sound mm-hmm. saudi arabia oh i'm shocked 62 cents u.s dollars a liter so uh and the u.s still only at 87 uh cents u.s per liter right now they're at about four bucks for a gallon of gas is about four liters uh, in a gas gallon. Uh, okay, so math, math lesson over. Thank goodness, right? We promised no math and we didn't deliver. We lied about that. Uh, Mike Roth, Rothman is the president of Cornerstone Analysts and an energy expert, and he's kind enough to join Toronto today uh, right now. I should also tell our guests that there's no math on the show, but you're probably much better at it than I am. Uh, my high school transcripts would indicate that. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for uh, asking me to be on. Absolutely. When I when I document some of those numbers, I mean, we've always seen that in Europe, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be uh, upset and we shouldn't be uh, really rattled by what we're looking at right now in North America. But in in Europe, um, anybody who's traveled in Europe has who's put petrol in has felt that push uh, on their wallet before. I can't imagine two dollars and forty one cents U.S. a liter in the Netherlands. Well, the thing about uh, gasoline prices is outside the U.S., the tax component is quite high in most countries. So Europe, if you Mm -hmm. look at what they pay per gallon, it has to do not so much with the crude oil market as it has to do with taxes. And uh, it doesn't matter that you could say it's regressive or not. It's a simple fact that they use fuel as a way to generate state income. Were we headed, Mike, for a big jump in price at the pump this winter, regardless, irrespective of Russia's invasion and war against Ukraine? Were we headed there anyway? We were. The reality is that the oil markets, when we talk about the global balances, were poised to become materially tight. And I know this is a this is not an audience of necessarily financial investors, and it's let's say the average person. Mm-hmm. doesn't really get versed on uh, all the ins and outs of the global oil market. But the simple fact is the outlook was uh, poised to see that effect. And it has to do with two uh, pretty straightforward things. One was the expectation that global oil demand was going to fully recover as we came out of the pandemic. There's really nothing of volume equivalent that can take the place of oil in the energy mix. The world lives on oil as, as much as people want to believe otherwise, but the the world runs on oil. However, if you look at the supply part of the equation, uh, the countries outside of OPEC were not going to see the same kind of a rebound. And what that meant was that you were going to see a lot more pressure on OPEC to meet market needs and a higher amount of demand having to be met by the use of inventories. And we are just coming off of the largest, excuse me, the largest ever inventory draw in the history of the markets. So the, the, the physical balances were getting tight. The issue with Russia is simply exacerbating those problems. 
How is Canada viewed on the uh, world energy market? I'd lay this out for our audience so they know uh, that we are the fourth highest oil producing country. We produce 6% of the world's oil. We only consume about two and a half of it. So that makes us very energy rich. And that makes us obviously able to be profitable um, in terms of selling because we're we're not using as much as we're able to produce. And there's going to be a lot of debate about whether we can up production in the um, in in the spotlight of obviously uh, the the concept of going more green and using less fossil fuels, but now at least in the next several months may not be the time that countries and electorates no less can get behind that. Well, there's a few you know you don't you may not realize there's a lot of parts of what you're actually asking about. Yeah. First, with Canada, uh, it's resource rich. It's a key part of the economy, but the problem. Uh, for Canada, in terms of uh, thinking about its role globally, is not about raising production. The resources appear to be there in uh, Western Canada, the Alberta province, to raise production. The problem has been the ability to export more oil. And the environmental lobby is very strong in Canada, as it is here. It has held up uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline and other pipeline projects because you have to effectively move oil from point A to point B, right? It's, it's, if you can produce all the oil you want, Fort McMurray doesn't help you if you can't get it to a refiner somewhere else. So uh, that is not going to change anytime in the near future. That, that's that's kind of locked. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the world, uh, when you think about Canada and uh, status as an exporter and the countries that you think might be able to step in and perhaps raise production exports because of what might potentially happen with Russia is really limited. This is not a situation where there is sufficient spare production capacity and export capacity to offset a uh, loss of Russian supplies. Russia is the second biggest oil exporter in the world. People are generally not familiar with that, but their exports are number two behind Saudi Arabia. And it's about seven and a half million barrels a day on average. There's no way to make that up. So if you say, can Canada help? The answer is not really, because you already have kind yeah. of strained systems in place. It's a gr- Thank you for giving context to that answer. Fareed Zakaria was on CNN on his show on Sunday morning, and he suggested, and this got people really ticked off in in a you know you know on, on in a society right now based on everything that's happening, where we're we're all a little bit easily uh, rattled and angered. But he suggested a reach out from the United States and Joe Biden um, to uh, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, warming up that relationship and buying more Saudi oil. I don't know about the political wherewithal to be able to do that, maybe especially from a Democratic president. Um, but um, Saudi Arabia is sitting there, right? Second biggest oil producer in the world. Do they have enough people to sell their oil to in terms of demand? Uh, Saudi Arabia has some spare capacity, but the reality is it is not sufficient to offset losses of any consequence from Russia. That That's, mm-hmm. that's sort of a big issue. Back in uh, 1991, not to turn this into any kind of a history lesson, there was uh, 4.2 million barrels uh, lost overnight when Iraq invaded Kuwait. Literally, a chunk of the world's oil disappeared overnight. And OPEC was able to make up for that lost supply, the rest of OPEC, in three weeks. There was no real disruption to the physical market. This is not the same kind of situation as what we had 30 years ago. You don't have sufficient spare capacity to make up for large losses. And to be fair, again, for the average person, mm-hmm. if you're thinking about Russian oil and, and even Russian natural gas, they're re- 
their supplies, what they export to the rest of the world, uh, is irreplaceable, which is why the notion of sanctions and an embargo on Russian oil was never really viewed as a, a high probability event, even if they aggressed Ukraine, as they ultimately did. I, but I'm glad I'm so glad you bring that up because that that is something I was looking at over the weekend. There was a lot of seesawing gas prices in in the U.S. and and Canada when Iraq invaded Kuwait, and then subsequently, you know, George Herbert Walker Bush took on Iraq with Operation Desert Storm. But by summer '91, so almost a year after the invasion, gas prices had returned to normal. The problem here, Mike, I, I feel like it's I'm stating the obvious. This doesn't look like a conflict that can end within a year and, and, and not with any you know great resolution. This this could be a lot longer than that. Thus, we're going to see gas prices um, fluctuate probably in only one direction for the duration of, of this war. So remember, uh, again, I, I know this is not a, a, a market uh, segment that you're talking to that follows the ins and outs of the oil market. But prior to. What happened with Russia going to Ukraine, the oil market was already uh, seeing significant tightness. Most people believe that last year, 2021, was going to see an oil glut develop. A wildly incorrect uh, forecast. And they really thought that there was going to be this huge surge in U.S. production. They thought the rest of the countries in non-OPEC were going to see a big increase in their output. They thought OPEC was going to fail miserably mm-hmm. at trying to restrain output. And uh, last year saw the single largest inventory draw back to whenever you want to look. My oil balance models go back to 1971. There's nothing close to what we saw last year. So people were blaming Russia and what was happening for high oil prices and kind of conveniently ignoring the reality of the tightness that occurred. And if you layer in now Russia or any one of a number of uh, risks to supply, like very few people ever talk about the civil war in Iraq or the Christian Muslim war in Venezuela, uh, Nigeria, or the deterioration of the infrastructure in Venezuela, or uh, the risk that has become evident in even Saudi Arabia's export operations. Like none of that gets even discussed or priced in. But Russia as sort of being blamed for Yes, it's the reason the last leg up in oil prices had, but we would have been north of $100 anyway just because of the draw on inventories. Right. That's a, I'm so glad you made that point. Mike Rothman's our guest president of Cornerstone Analyst and an energy expert. Do you look then and say the U.S. reaching out to Venezuela, something maybe even unthinkable six months ago, is based solely on it's a reaction to this this uh, this premeditated action by Vladimir Putin. Could something develop with the U.S. and Venezuela that keeps, at least for American consumers, a bit of a cap on how high gas prices can go? Okay. First, just to uh, sort of clear the record, my, my company's called Cornerstone Analytics. So oh, what did I say? <laughs> Analyst. Oh, sorry. <laughs> analytics. Wanna, okay. Okay. That's all right. You wouldn't want me to call you, you know, Tony when your name's Tommy. <laughs> so it's, uh, I want to get it right. I'm one. glad you said that. Good. Yeah, no, not a problem. Number one. Number two, reaching out to Venezuela is uh, it's a sign of desperation. I mean, uh, I can't speak to Canadian politics, but in U.S. politics, is the hard rules always look like you're trying to do something. Yeah. Confused with actually doing something. So reaching out to Venezuela is uh, the analogy I, I have used is it's, it's like the stewards throwing deck chairs off the Titanic as it was taking on water. It's, it's just a sort of a ridiculously uh, uh, dumb idea. Venezuela cannot raise its production. Its, its infrastructure has been so battered and they have mismanaged their resources 
that their production is literally a, a fraction of what it was uh, before Chavez's effects on the oil industry uh, were, were, I guess, put in place. They, they used to produce about 3.4 million barrels a day. They're down to around 600,000 a day. And the path of least resistance at this point looks like it is still down, uh, as, as low as the number already is. So reaching out to Venezuela with a super secret delegation, uh, you know, to think about sanctions and things like that is just like a that's just a waste of time. So but do you think they will? I agree with it. it's it's mo- it's mostly image as opposed to practicality. But will they yeah. will they ease the sanctions? Do you think? Uh, I, don't, I don't know that that's uh, palpable. I mean, uh, they're, you know, the. The bigger issue is less about what's happening, uh, possibly even happening with Venezuela, and more about Iran. Um, people uh, believed or wanted to believe uh, that the U.S. was going to make a deal with Iran right after the administration changed in the U.S. Mm-hmm. There's been eight rounds of negotiations. It's, it's kind of been you know more painful to watch than a thrill from Manila, and there's been <laughs> still very little uh, forward movement meant. The people were promising a week ago that a deal was going to be announced, and of course Russia toe-tackled that by making its own recent demands over the weekend. But uh, I, I don't see Venezuela or mm. what might happen with Iran as an ability to really uh, short-circuit this tightening of the oil market. That's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the game, the games in Russia. Uh, it's, it's not going to. You're right. It's not going to be in uh, in Venezuela. Mike Rothman, president of Cornstone Analytics. Thank you very much for coming on the show here in Toronto. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for having me. Patrick Brown, Mayor Brampton, uh, joining us on the uh, on on the Chatterbox uh, segment. It's great to have you on, as always. A pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And Steve Pakin, host of TVO's The Agenda, who I'm sure never, ever tried to get into. I wouldn't ask a politician that question, but Steve, I'm sure you never tried to get into a restricted movie and uh, under the age of 18 in Ontario with our with our draconian restricted movie laws back in the 80s. Only once. And the movie was Deliverance and it was worth it. What a picture. <laughs> that was your choice. OK. Yeah. <laughs> I think my first was The Untouchables. I got in at like uh, later that summer in, in 87 and I couldn't believe it. There were like eight people in the theater and I'm like, OK, I'm uh, I'm an ad- I'm an adult now. My mom's going to pick me up after the movie. But, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm getting closer. I'm getting closer. Uh, Steve, let's start with you. Um, you've watched, uh, and, and all of us have, uh, these atrocities continue in Ukraine. Um, television's not wavering from covering this. We're into almost two weeks of this now. We had Marcus Kolga um, on the show yesterday. He said it almost feels like World War One fighting than World War Two, based on the rubble and the destruction of cities. But this, this just does not have a quick resolution. So I, I, I'll be real curious to know, our own bandwidth, broadcasters bandwidth, politicians bandwidth to keep this at the front of, uh, no pun intended, the agenda. Well, if I remember properly, World War One lasted for four years, and I am hoping with every fiber of my being, as I'm sure everybody is, that this thing is not going to last that long. That w- It's already appalling enough. Uh, like you, like so many people, I've been trying to figure out how this thing ends I'm not quite sure how it ends because I cannot imagine the Ukrainians, I cannot imagine their courageous leader suddenly deciding holus bolus to give Vladimir Putin everything he's asked for. Uh, on the other hand, it, this is a mismatch. This is, a, this is one massive country invading the sovereignty of a much smaller country. And theoretically, I, I'm sure Vladimir Putin has been surprised by the fact that it's gone on as long as it has. I guess he, I guess he forgets one of the most important Things to come out of World War II, and that was when the Soviet Union existed, some of the best fighters in the Red Army were, of course, the Ukrainian divisions. 
And he's sure mm-hmm. finding that out right now. Mayor Brown, it, I think Steve makes a really salient point in that we've looked at conflicts before and we all think we know how it's going to end. And we all think we know the timeline as well. I could make that case with, uh, you know, with going into Afghanistan and, and having Canadian forces help out in 2001. But it took a lot longer than anyone predicted, even the war in Iraq um, with, under George W. Bush in 2003 to look for the weapons of mass destruction to a year and a half after 9-11 took forever. Bush famously hung that mission accomplished banish, uh, banner, but it was nowhere near being accomplished. So many world leaders have made these mistakes before. Yeah, and I think in Putin's case, one of his greatest miscalculations is uh, the resilience and the fight of the Ukrainian people. I don't know how he envisions, even if he manages to win his military operation, how do you occupy, occupy a country where the intensity of the dislike um, is as fierce as it is in Ukraine. And they're, mm-hmm. they're not helping matters by the killing of innocent civilians, the tactics that the Russians are engaging in during this um, uh, invasion is, is only going to elevate the intensity of, of, uh, the, of the pride in, in Ukrainian independence. And I, 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 I don't see an exit path for, for Putin where he's successful. Mayor Brown, you mentioned um, the Ukrainians in your community, and and it's been well documented how many uh, Ukrainian Canadians there are will obviously take a lead role uh, in in government provincially and federally um, to bring Ukrainians here and and make them feel safe and make them feel counted and and give them opportunities to to rebuild should they choose to become Canadians. What I what I worry about and I see a little bit is an unnecessary persecution, perhaps, of Russian Canadians and Russian citizens. I think we really have to walk cautiously around this. There's there's people that are here because they want to be Canadian. And even if they're of Russian heritage, they don't support this. They don't support Vladimir Putin. And we're really, I, I worry we're putting a bit of a harsh spotlight upon uh, Russian Canadians sometimes uh, based on this. And we've made that mistake before in certain military conflicts. And, and we've looked pretty bad when we've done it. Yeah, no, I think that's a very fair commentary, because if you meet those with Russian ancestry here in Canada, um, they're as uh, disappointed and angry um, about Putin's behavior as, as, as anyone else. Uh, so it's uh, um, you know, his time right here, his, his barbaric actions um, are a stain um, on their reputation. And so for those with Russian heritage, they're very much angry at at uh, at Putin, so so we can't forget that component as well. It's an odd one too. Can I jump um, in on that, Greg. Yeah, f- feel free, Steve. Absolutely, that's what we're here for. Yeah, I just I just think of the 16 year old Russian kids, for example, and, and this is an example that mm-hmm. uh, the mayor of Brampton would appreciate, given how much he and, and and I both love hockey. There's a lot of 16 year old kids who are playing junior hockey in the province of Ontario, in in you know small cities and towns all over the place. And the notion that these 16-year-olds have, you know, should somehow have to bear the burden of, of, of one madman's uh, ill-advised decision, you know, it's a bit much, I think. I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, I, I rode the buses in the OHL in Saginaw and Windsor broadcasting for seven years, and each team was allowed, as you guys know, two European players. And especially if they were Eastern European, I'd watch them on the road, and, and I'd watch them get a tougher time when they turned the puck over. I'd watch the crowd kind of cheer extra loud if they got slammed into the boards by a good Canadian kid. And I know I, I know we had this, didn't we, to some extent with, with Don Cherry. For whatever good he brought, there was at times the idea that the OHL or the CHL should just be Canadian kids, maybe not even allowing the amount of American kids. 
And Mayor Brown, I, I just think I, I think that's that's an awful way to get out our frustration or or bring our politics and cheer for that or, or the idea that that we shouldn't allow these these great players to enhance the game around us that we love so much. And if you want to get your frustration out, donate to the Red Cross yeah. efforts in Ukraine or Global Medic, which is a, a GTA based organization that right now is on the ground. Um, in adjacent countries to Ukraine, helping with the evacuation of refugees. There are ways to express your frustration and organizations to support. And Steve, I will tell you this, tonight, Capitals in uh, in Edmonton against the Oilers, they will play, the. so it's Alex Ovechkin there, they'll play the Ukrainian anthem uh, before, they've been doing that with Flames games. I don't think we've done it for the Leafs yet, but Flames games, Senators games, Oilers games have all played the Ukrainian anthem. And as we said, 160,000 people in Edmonton are, are of Ukrainian descent, 90,000 in Calgary. Um, I'm not expecting a great, a great, you know, welcome for Alex Ovechkin, but I don't want it to border on like hatred and terrible signs and go back to, I don't want that. That's not who we are. I totally agree with you on that. And, and of course, Alex Ovechkin being one of the greatest players of all time, most times he touches the puck in a visiting team's arena. <laughs> he's going to get booed anyway, right? Just because he's so good. But yes, let's hope the boos are for hockey-related reasons as opposed to ethnic-related reasons. Yeah, you make a great point. Usually the uh, the you suck is uh, is for their best. But you suck, McDavid. And actually, no, you're saying that because he's really uh, awesome. That's how it works. Yeah. Uh, Mayor Brown, let me turn this to you. You called for the uh, federal government. This is all interrelated, really, with oil and gas prices and the price of the pump. You called for the federal government not to push through an increase in the carbon tax, which actually would come our way in about 24 days from now, about three and a half weeks. Um, thoughts on, on this? What the benefit of this is, obviously, it saves us some, it gives us some, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, salvage at the pump. But, at, you know, many of us also understand the need and benefit to push away from fossil fuels. Are you at all hopeful that the uh, that the liberal government would consider this? It doesn't appear like they're considering it. And it's just the wrong time for a new burden. You know, right now, the reality is it hasn't been just a health pandemic. It's been an economic tidal wave. And there are businesses at the brink. There are families at the brink. And I don't believe that it is reasonable to put a new burden, a new financial burden on Canadians as we try to get back on our feet uh, uh, post, uh, post, post-pandemic. Um, and so I really hope that they, they, they reconsider this. Uh, I don't think they necessarily, in the, in the, in the bubble of Ottawa, appreciate the financial adversity that many Canadians have gone through during this pandemic. And, you know, every month during the pandemic, I had to learn about small businesses, restaurants Mm -hmm. um, that were closed in our community. Um, It's tough. And, and, you know, there's transportation, transportation logistics companies in my community that have set contracts for the delivery of goods. And with this international um, crisis in Ukraine, there is, you know, you're seeing inflation at, at uh, uh, very unstable levels of, of inflation. You're seeing uh, gas levels that we haven't seen in, in recent memory. And um, and people are tied to contracts. So it's going to put people on the brink. Don't make the situation worse. Steve, what about that point Mayor Brown makes? He's got a young family and probably his kids, they may only ever drive uh, electric cars. We're driving fossil fuel cars right now and, and probably... These are conversations that we all could have at our own uh, individual kitchen tables and many of our listeners. But the people that have to drive for work, the people that are truckers or that are, um, you know, working for Uber, working for Lyft, they don't have the option to run out and and splash out forty five, fifty thousand dollars for an electric car right now. It's just not that simple. No, quite true. And uh, as is my custom, I'm not going to weigh in on what is a contentious public policy issue because yep. 
you know, in the event I have to discuss this on the agenda, I've got to look like an honest broker on this thing. But having said that, I think we're discovering how problematic it is, uh, since there are so many Eastern European countries right now that are so dependent, Germany 40 percent, uh, for fossil fuels coming out of Russia. And uh, one wonders how much better off we'd all be right now if we depended so much less on Russian oil and gas and whether the conflict uh, would have a very different tone right now if we weren't so dependent, so, so many countries in the West, on Russian oil and gas. Yeah, that's a big factor right there. I want to leave some time uh, for uh, International Women's Day today. I, I found a chart and a study from the Organization for Economic Cooperation Development. So we're an OECD country and they rank 29 countries. And I worry we did this a little bit, Steve, with uh, with healthcare before the pandemic, where we pat ourselves on the back. We brag about our healthcare, And there are things to brag about, most of which are the men and women that work in those industries. But we fall behind and we fall below the OECD average in a lot of ways. Even maternity leave. We, we give less time for maternity leave than uh, than the OECD average. We like to look and say, well, we're better than the United States. Yeah, we're better than a lot of things to do with healthcare in the United States. But we're in a province right now that doesn't have a, a proper child care plan. We've only got 29 percent of seats in our federal parliament right now uh, since it's since the last election held by women. Um, they're like we're getting more women into into different industries. There's more women in university and getting master's degrees and doctorates. But we're falling down in a few places still, aren't we? Well, let me pick up on the political angle since you raised parliament. Yeah. And that is uh, just a couple of days ago, I had a really delightful, probably 70 minute Zoom call with Kim Campbell. And for those who are too young to remember this, she is still our one and only female prime minister. And she was elected, for goodness sakes, well, chosen by the PC party and then lost the ensuing election. It's been 30 years, almost 30 years. So, yes, Canada does like to pride itself on uh, its progressive uh, record as it relates to getting women into public life and so many other things. But how many other countries around the world have had one, two, three numerous female leaders? Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting, I find, that Canada, for all its talk about being such a progressive nation, still one and only <laughs> Kim Campbell in 154 years of prime ministers. I still sort of scratch my head at that. Mayor Brown, what are your thoughts on, on things we can look at doing better, whether it's managerial positions, whether it's it's, you know, pushing more women towards uh, politics where, where, let's face it, your life ends up being very, very public. Net child care, the best way to support a woman uh, in terms of the workplace is to make sure, encourage her to, you know, be able to afford to have a baby. And we know, the three of us would know um, anecdotally what child care costs are like in Toronto, let alone in, in smaller urban centers in the province. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's a very, a very uh, good point, uh, Greg, because you know, right now, in my own world, you know, looking at the cost of, of child care, they're exorbitant. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, if I look at the cost of puts on my family, just imagine for, for, for other families, you know, we have to level that playing field. And we have to make sure that there are not barriers to participation in, in, in the workforce. And so I, I do believe that we still have significant work to do in in Ontario and and in Canada, and if you lose if you use the context of where other countries are on this, um, it, it should be a wake up call that, that we have to do better. And and I thought, you know, Steve's point in terms of the number of senior leaders we've had in other in other countries compared to to our own country um, s speaks to the fact that we have to do better in Canada. 
By the way, the uh, you guys would, would get a little bit of a giggle at this. Hungary leads the way among OECD countries. Women get the equivalent of 68.2 weeks of paid maternity leave. I know if I was around the house that long, 68.2 straight weeks, my wife would be like, you got to find something to do. Go out with your friends. Do something. Uh, yeah. One, one uh, Bill Davis uh, <laughs> uh, note for you and Steve Pakin, because me and Steve like to do that. The first woman cabinet minister appointed in Ontario's history was by former Premier Bill Davis. Who, who was it? Mayor? Margaret Birch. Margaret Birch. Okay, okay, okay. And uh, do, you, do you remember her portfolio? Now it's like a game of trivial pursuit here for the wedge. Do you remember what was her portfolio? She, 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 she her first portfolio was was just minister without portfolio, but she moved up after that. Amazing. Wow. Well, that's Bill Davis. That's a, a trailblazer, as we discussed uh, last week. Uh, thank you guys for the segment today. Loved every second of it. Really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. I'm so excited to have our next guest on. Uh, she entered into, was entered into, uh, the Women Mean Business Conference. Uh, she's Casey Beck. Uh, she's the owner of Teal Fit Pro. And this is, boy, um, you know, when his birthday comes around or their wedding anniversary comes around, uh, it may be her getting him the gift. Fiance Matt entered her into this contest. I want to welcome Casey Beck onto uh, Toronto today. Boy, oh boy. Uh, you know, Matt, I know you're planning uh, a wedding um, and Matt won't get much of a say as to seating arrangements and the DJ and maybe even the meal. But but he stepped up and nominated you for this contest. He's doing well. He definitely wins brownie points. We <laughs> phone on the radio. My clients gave him a standing ovation. Oh, that's good. Can he go on that golf trip he has planned for uh, for eight days later this summer? Is that okay now? <laughs> <laughs> as long well, as he keeps getting me back on the radio. That works. That works for us. Tell us and the audience about your business, everything you've had to deal with and go through in uh, in just the last two years. There have been your business, especially Casey, has been open, closed, open, closed. Um, I, I I can't imagine how many sleepless nights and moments of frustration there's been. Um, so my business has had a very interesting story. So um, I was actually working on cruise ships when the pandemic happened, and one day Donald Trump was on TV and said, "No more cruise ships." So we went back to Canada from the Caribbean and I started my business prime in the pandemic and I am a personal trainer. I run a training studio and I just noticed there's, there was such a need for sustainable fitness solutions, especially with COVID. Everyone's really lost themselves with the lockdowns. Mm-hmm. But I was going to say we have gone on quite a roller coaster of open clothes since then. I've been in lockdown three times, three times of lockdown. So I've really learned how to adapt in these last two years, but it's, honestly been amazing i'm still opening my first training studio in may and we have such an amazing community of women and i'm just such a proud little trainer <laughs> i can only imagine how many women how many um you know that they could be moms they could be not with kids yet and they've been so frustrated trying to stay fit uh physical health encourages mental health that's for sure and emotional health we've all needed that in in in, in tremendous amounts these last two years and i can only imagine how they're so relieved that that there looks like there's at the minimum an opening in sight to to not close again to stay open and, and take care of your uh and and take advantage of your business and and what you're going to provide for them well honestly it's been amazing just for people to have an outlet of physical activity even during the lockdowns we completely switched to online i wanted to make sure that fitness was never going to be unaccessible to people Mm -hmm. and part of my business when you're addressing the mental health uh teal is actually an acronym for training eating affirmations and lifestyle my biggest belief is you have to address all four to actually live a healthy lifestyle 
you can do all the physical work you want, but if you're not addressing your mental health, it, it's not going to do a thing. And I think that's a big lesson everyone's learned in the pandemic, that we really need to be addressing our mental health as well as our physical health. Casey Beck is joining us. Uh, Teal Fit Pro is her business. On this International Women's Day, uh, what's a great message for women who are, are now uh, you know, able to support other women based on uh, whether it's economically or whether it's you know, women saying to you, you can do this. Like, like these were dreams, you, the dreams that I think little girls had when they were five, six, seven, eight years old in, in the new generation. There's a lot more of an open world than there was 25, 30 years ago, thanks to women like you showing the way. I think the biggest message I can give anyone, and I say this to my clients all the time, there's two quotes and they know I repeat it all the time, but it's really how I think everyone should pursue their life. You are treated how you allow yourself to be treated. So it's very important to set boundaries that are going to make you successful with the people in your life and within yourself when it comes to self-discipline. And you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Life is short. We can't guarantee we have tomorrow. So we need to make sure we're acting today and we're doing things in our day that we're making ourselves proud and we're making ourselves a healthier, better version of ourselves, whatever that looks like to an individual. Love the sound of that. You're based out of Stouffville. How can people, um, you know, take advantage of your business? How can people support uh, your business, Casey? Well, they can follow Teal Fit Pro on Instagram or TikTok at Teal Fit Pro. We're also on Facebook and we have a new studio opening May 1st. We also offer virtual sessions as well and online coaching. All of that can be found at TealFitPro.com. We make fitness accessible for literally everyone. With online coaching and personal training, people can train with me live. You can train with me in Spain. You can train with me in Timbuktu, wherever. Amazing, Casey. Thanks for being so uh, energetic, inspiration as, uh, as well. Uh, thanks for uh, also, Matt, for, uh, for nominating you. When, when, do you. when do you guys get married? You probably had to put that on hold for a little while. So we are purely a pandemic engagement. Uh, we have not been able to do an <laughs> engagement party, anything yet. But we get married this year, August 20th. And you'll be very relieved Matt gets his own bachelor trip in Vegas where he'll be doing tons of golfing. Oh, poor baby. Okay, okay, take back. We're going to edit out the uh, all the, all the uh, you know, humble, humility and praise that I uh, offered up uh, in the first sentence uh, before I introduced yeah. you. Is Matt, gr- no, just take that all back. I think so. It's great to have you on. Congratulations on, uh, on being back on your feet and doing what you're doing um, in terms of being out there. And thanks for entering our Women Mean Business uh, initiative. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Casey Beck uh, from Teal Fit Pro. I mentioned this chart. It was rather fascinating. Sheba Siddiqui and I were just discussing it. We plan to do it again a couple times uh, throughout the morning. I thought I found, you know, it's, it gives you the OECD average of, uh, of where women are in the 29 countries that are part of the OECD and where Canada's ahead and where we're behind. I mentioned university. That's going really well right now. Participation rates, um, what's called tertiary education attainment, 13.1 points higher than men. That's fantastic. Good. Um, In Canada, though, women hold 29.1% of seats on boards. So the the methodology by which women are promoted in the workplace needs serious work. This is a tricky one. 29% of seats in Parliament. I I absolutely think our government should look more like what Canada looks like. That's what they're attempting in the United States. Many, many uh, presidents have often said, you can go back to Bill Clinton. He said, well, I think our, our, you know, our cabinet, the, the people in, in my government should look like, like America. And um, I think we've, we're doing better on that front with diversity in terms of skin color. We may not be doing great on the men, male, female ballots. That said, 
politics has gotten more it feels like it's gotten more personal more dirty more ugly more um you you give up everything your privacy and uh, it is possible that we're losing in this process really good candidates that simply don't want to do it or don't want to do it anymore like you do it for a certain shelf life of time and i'm going to bring up paternity leave and maternity leave we we like to pat ourselves on the back in canada for paid maternity leave we're behind the OECD average of countries like Japan, Finland, Sweden, Germany, Norway. Czech Republic gives a ton more maternity time, 46.9 weeks paid maternity leave. We do um, 26.6. We're behind the average. It, like we always look to the U.S. as a lens and we were. Yeah, we're better, but that shouldn't be the standard. That shouldn't be the standard. And in Canada, men get no paid paternity leave. They don't. And they do in several other countries. So all of these are issues. And, and uh, right. It takes a village. So uh, we matter, too. And I remember fe- feeling that like I'm not I'm not getting paid a day and I want to spend time with my new baby. But we don't do that here and other countries do it. We got to find a better way to do those things. Paulette Senior is the president and CEO of the Canadian Women's Foundation. And it's a pleasure and honor to welcome her on International Women's Day. Sheba and I were just looking at a, at a graph. Uh, Paulette, and and thanks so much for making the time um, about a a lot of what we're doing well and things we need to get better at. Do do you kind of look at at things similarly? Like there's progress, but we still, you know, we can't take a step forward and then and then take a step back at the same time. Yeah, it's been like that for a long time, and the pandemic has actually worsened it. And before the pandemic, you know, we were kind of crawling or having that kind of incremental increase in a number of things, uh, whether it's women's leadership or uh, women in politics, uh, et cetera. But uh, the pandemic has really set us back in terms of even women's uh, participation in the workforce has taken a serious blow. Is there are, are there aspects that you, you look and say, but pandemic aside, even it's hard to put it aside, Paulette, that, that we are improving at considerably. I bring up higher education and we are getting women to those higher education institutions. There's more women with master's degrees and doctorate degrees, way more so than 20, 25 years ago. The problem being, as Shiva and I documented, you get to the workplace and you want that to translate into a position worthy of that particular degree and a salary commensurate with that degree. And sometimes we're really falling down there. We, we certainly are um, because the, the educational achievements that women have had over the past 25, 30 years in higher education is not uh, metering out when it comes to their roles that they're holding, let's say in the corporate sector. Um, so it is still very much behind where uh, women are not being promoted as much, they're not given the opportunities, they're, they're not even getting the same pay for the same work and the same positions that they hold. So there is a barrier that, that women are facing. And then when you look at women who are from diverse backgrounds, racialized women, mm-hmm. indigenous women, uh, and, and the, the various diversity backgrounds, um, it's even worse. It's even worse in that regard. So. There's still a lot of work that we have to do. And, and I think that the opportunity that the pandemic offers is that we could actually reset what, what's been the norm. Uh, so reset it to actually put in place policies and, and make the kinds of decisions that will, you know, e- equalize the, the playing ground and make, making sure that we are prioritizing equity as a value in society.
Paulette Sr. is uh, joining us, President and CEO of the Canadian Women's Foundation on Toronto today on this International Women's Day, March the 8th. You bring up something that that I hope we'll get to. I think a lot of us with the pandemic, and we've done it with some things where we say, oh, thank goodness that's over. Thank goodness my individual danger's over or my kid can play sports again or this and that. And it's the easy thing to do. And, and in some ways, we do need that e- emotional reset to feel like it's 2019 again. But to your point, restructuring things so that should this ever happen again, we're be- we're more ready, we're better structured, we're better insulated in the workplace. Think about the even an occupation like nursing, where the majority, um, uh, th- th- these brave women and men, but it is, an, it is an occupation dominated by women. And we've seen the inequities created by, by not treating nurses properly in terms of salary, working hours, being able to lean on colleagues. All of that has been true. We've, we've, we've got to tear that down and build it back up again. Uh, absolutely. Um, and, and it's really about making the right decisions. You know, just making the right decisions, making the decisions that are fair and equitable and, and uh, you know, not calling nurses and other frontline workers heroes while not paying them mm-hmm. what they deserve. You know, so we, we had to depend on these essential workers. We had to depend on them for a safe in our health. And so let's actually demonstrate that importance in terms of the roles they play by paying them fairly. You know, and and not not uh, uh, continuing to take their work for granted. Paulette Senior is our guest on Toronto today. Gender justice—that's um, an important phrase. Uh, it's getting used a lot more. It encompasses a lot. What does it mean to you? Well, you know, to me, gender justice is is really about um, a number of things impacting the lives of women, um, and and to be able to create the kind of systems that provide uh, long-weighted uh, justice for women. So it means fair and livable wages, freedom from violence, access to affordable housing and childcare, um, diverse leadership, um, and, and making sure that, that women have every opportunity to thrive. Um, and, and that's an important part of how society needs to be structured, and, and actually valuing the work that women bring, the, 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 the contribution that we make, because it is clear to me, and I know I keep going back to the pandemic, it's clear mm-hmm. to me that if we don't actually treat women fairly, we won't recover from this pandemic. That, that Canada depends on women to have a full recovery. I think of industries that I'm I'm fascinated by, uh, whether it's what I'm doing now. We've got uh, two brilliant female hosts in Kelly Cotrera and Alex Pearson. Sheba Siddiqui is is amazing on our show and will be able to do anything and everything she wants in this business. I think about sports and I don't have a daughter, but I think what they get to see, whether it's Olympic athletes or or the you know women's hockey in the Olympics, far outrating any single NHL game that's been played this year. And, and women, even playing sports, Paulette, can make a living. They can go to college. They can get it. All these things are happening at a much more exponential extent than 10, 15 years ago. Some of our progress has to be really inspiring to young girls that say, "I my mom couldn't see myself in this industry, broadcasting, sports, whatever, but I sure can. Yeah. And, and where would we be without the women's hockey team or the women's uh, soccer team? You mm-hmm. know, as Canadians, we're proud. We cheer them on. We love them. They come back from the Olympics and we celebrate them. 
yet uh, we have a society where we have accepted that it's okay for them to get paid less. But how does that make sense? You know, so so let's let's actually reset the kind of normal that we had prior to the pandemic to one that is barrier free, that actually demonstrates how much we all mean to each other and that we are indeed equal. So if we're equal, pay us equally, um, uh, you know, create a society that is safe for us to walk whenever we want to walk around our communities, making sure that we have childcare so we can fully participate in the workforce. All of these things are important part of the structures that we need to build. I, I know what an advocate you are, and many of us are, for diversity and inclusion. Tell I, got, I, have, I have a follow-up question to this, but what can women do to better support other women? Sometimes, and in some industries, I think we'd agree on this, it's competitive. I mean, you look around in law school and, and, and in journalism school where I went, and you say, Ooh, I, I, I want to be the one that gets that, that great job offer coming out. What can women do to support other women? Well, you know, I, I, I have to say, I think we're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and we're doing it in a way that makes sure that we uh, are, are uh, clearing the path, breaking down the barriers, um, mentoring, sponsoring, you know, all the active things that we need to participate in. We're putting together events to recognize women, we're, we're doing the work, but we also need to break, it's the, you know, we also need to break down the systems that actually keep us from moving forward. So we need to have men as allies that actually believe and take it seriously that we are their equal counterpart and that they can also are actively sponsoring and mentoring and making sure that, uh, that our voice and our presence are at key decision-making tables. So I, I think that's the kind of direction we need to be going in and that we're making the kinds of policies, whether it's about hiring and retention, to ensure that we're seeing. Because in this time, particularly in the corporate sector, what we're seeing is what they're calling the great resignation. Right. And this is having a very serious impact on women's ability to balance everything they have to do, whether it's um, you know, taking care of children or elder care and all of that in the middle that they have to do and be able to hold down the jobs that, that they've been doing. So women are leaving and making the choice to leave because, this, we're, you know, they don't have the child care. They don't have the supports that they need to do all they need to do. So we all have a role to play. And uh, whether it's the allyship of men, but also um, the support of all of us, especially those of us who are in positions of power, that we see our responsibility is to support younger women that are coming up. I was going to ask you just that, Paulette, about about net childcare costs. This OECD study has us ranked very poorly. Um, the average uh, in, in the OECD countries, net childcare costs are sixteen point four percent of the average wage. In Canada, they're thirty one point six. They're almost double that. And you can imagine, right? GTA. I, I've talked to people. I live out in the suburbs, and what people pay for childcare costs, daycare in in Toronto proper, it's astronomical. It's borderline obscene. And other countries have found a way uh, to do this much, much better than we do. We, we've got to get that right. That's one of the biggest things we can do to support women is make it affordable <laughs> for them to have kids and still work. Yeah, because we we need it. That's how you know. That's how we're built as a country is that we have children, and it's women that are doing that. So, you know, make sure that we are actually in Ontario. Ontario, I think, is the last holdout in terms of signing on to the National Child Care Plan to provide $10 a day uh, uh, daycare. 
Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we, we really need to have that in Ontario. And I hope it's not going to be used as an election ploy in terms of, uh, you know, at the last minute. We need to have it now. Parents depend on it now. So it's not just women. It's families. It's men. It's women. It's folks that, that are, are choosing to have children. And so uh, let's m- make sure that we are providing that critical support so that we can actually not be last in, in terms of the OECD rankings. Paulette, a political party would never, never use that as a political uh, jump start for an election. I mean, you know better, right? <laughs> wouldn't, that, wouldn't that be great? That be great? No, they would not. No. <laughs> around June 1st, around 9 p.m., we'll get that announced. We hope, way, way before that, we hope. That, that there's three months, but you're right. We are the last holdout. I can't thank you enough for joining me on, on an important day. Every day is an important day to talk about these issues, and uh, you're always welcome on this show. I always enjoy our conversations. Thanks for making the time for our audience. Thank you. I'm happy International Women's Day. Absolutely. Right back to you. Paulette Senior, President and CEO of the Canadian Women's Foundation. Uh, it is International Women's Day today. Don't be Woo. a... Right, Chiba. Don't be a wise ass. I once had a co-host, believe it or not, in a male-dominated industry that I used to work in, at a male-dominated workplace, <laughs> ask about International Men's Day. And I'm like, I need off this show immediately. Thankfully, he was off the show before I was, uh, and not by his own choice. And it wasn't because of that. But uh, this is an interesting one. Let me see how this lands for you. When I think about this, this day, and I read an op-ed by uh, somebody in Saskatchewan. I thought it was brilliant. Uh, The day's supposed to be about equal pay, better work environments. I worry sometimes, and I'll call myself out, maybe in times previous, I've treated this almost like it's, it's an extra Valentine's Day or an extra Mother's Day. This is about work and equality. Better work environments, equal pay, more female bosses, more opportunities, more growth. Do I have that right? Uh, yes, it is. But, but there's so much more uh, else that encompasses this. Right? I mean, it's such a, first of all, your co-worker. Every other day is International Men's Day. What a stooge. If, well, he was born in the 50s and I was born in the 70s. So a big distinction there. Okay, fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. But I mean, this it's uh, it's a day that we commemorate. And it's, I mean, I've been, I have a daughter and. She even knows she's very young and she looks forward to this day every year and she makes a big deal about it. And we're trying to promote that in the house, even with my sons, right? It's a day to acknowledge what women are doing. And yes, there is such a discrepancy in the workforce about, you know, entry level. So 50%, according to the Toronto Star, 50% of Toronto of entry level positions are made up of women. Okay. So it's, it's half and half. But when then you go up to like senior management levels, right? It, it dramatically falls. It's mainly men. I mean, even here, this is, I'm, this is very exciting at, at our radio station. This is the first time we've had uh, a female program director ever. It is. Right? Yeah. It's my, yeah. it's my second female program director. And I've had a boss of my program director also two different times uh, be a woman. So I'm proud of that. I no, mean, it's, absolutely. It's amazing. But then we've also seen, I mean, during this pandemic, we have seen this, what is happening, right? How, when these schools were canceled and just the pressure that it put upon women. And sure, it takes, it takes, it, there's a lot of co-parenting involved in having those kids at home and virtually schooling them, but the majority of that fell on women. So mm-hmm. the amount of women that, that quit their careers, that left the workforce to come home and be home full time again, it really was a huge setback. Yeah, let me run down some of these stats and tell me if you if you're surprised by this. Overall, um, so th- these are the uh, uh, OECD average, and there's 29 countries surveyed here. We rank 12th in terms of an environment for working women. The top five are Iceland, Sweden, Finland, Norway, France. Isn't that amazing? Four Scandinavian nations mm. uh, and France. We're way ahead 
of the United States, which is 22nd. We'd guess that that's probably probably accurate, right? Canada's yes. maybe a better place for a woman to work. Look, look at maternity alone. My wife, when, she, when we had our first kid, had uh, 12 weeks paid at like 48% off. Yeah, you don't get a year. You don't even we're, get anything close to that. You were in the States at the time. Right. Okay. Wow. Terrible. See, Terrible. You, you got to drop your kid off after like 12 weeks. He can't move. He's like an egg. He can't crawl. And you're dropping him off at daycare that. in the morning. Horrible. I know. And the women I know, my American friends who've done that, the guilt that they feel. Yes. Right? Many of them have to go back at six weeks. So it's it's awful. Whereas now we get 18 months in Canada. Isn't that crazy? And and I'm, and you, then you're, sh- she was pumping, right? She's pumping milk at work. Yep. Like it's not, it, and I, I would Did they ha- give her a designated room? <laughs> yes. Good. Yeah. She wasn't at the, at the uh, computer uh, no, uh, taking no. a- But it says a lot when you have a designated room, you know, for a woman to go do. Yeah. There this. were a couple, a couple women doing that. This is the good part as well. Uh, women's tertiary education attainment is uh, fourth among developed nations. Mm. We are educating women m- w- to a great extent. You know this, and I think we've talked about this before. Universities are where women are thriving right now. Some of where we fall down is what happens after university in terms of placement, equal pay, getting those, uh, getting all those opportunities and, and at-bats, uh, to, to use a baseball analogy, that we talked about. But we're educating women. If anything, we need more men to go to university and see it as a viable option because I, either they feel crowded out of it or they need in, to be incentivized. But more women are going to university and thriving than men now. It's good. They are, but let's see that reflect in upper management now. Right. I'd love to see right. that take that all the way to the top. Let's get it at, you know, 50-50. That would be fantastic. Even like our our nurses, our long-term care workers, majority of them are women, right? And what's happening there? I mean, there's so much that they have been through on their own, these nurses during this pandemic. I'd love to see... I'd love to see that number go to 50-50, but uh, hopefully sooner than later. Give you a couple more, and, and then I, do, I really want to do more of this as, as the show continues. Gender wage gap, we're way, way behind. Women earn 18.2% less than men. I, I think that's a shocking number, given it's 2022. Given And that's that, that's pre-pandemic, so it's probably gotten worse. And and, and I'd, I'd, I'd counterbalance that with women hold 35.1 of managerial positions, to your point. it's 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 more rare than it should be. Um, but it's better than the OECD average. But our wage gap is disastrous. So if a company is promoting a woman to management, they better start paying her like a man or or we should be saying things about it. But it's also up to women, I feel, to ask for that. Right? We have to find a way to ask for that. For example, I have a very good friend who's the head of HR for a major Canadian bank. And having a conversation with her, she was telling me that, you know what, 90% of men will ask for uh, for, uh, for a counter salary. They'll, they'll, they'll come back to you. She says mm. women rarely do it. So we need to we need to educate women and train them into how how to ask for more money. And they need to get that yes. They need to get that have the confidence to know that someone's going to say yes to them. Do you this is a, this is for you specifically, Sheba. Do you like to negotiate? And I ask that cuz my wife hates it. She hated the process of buying a home. She hates when we have to go in and do the car thing because she does feel it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm like, you're going to have to push back or 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 the guy's going to turn to me. I love if to if you right, you do? I love it. But See, it's also oh, some people But do. I think it's also No, but I think it's also like a salvation thing. You negotiate everything. Everything since the day you're born it's it's put in you. You don't pay full <laughs> price for anything. What? You ask for that deal. <laughs> I try and do that with uh, televisions at Best Buy, and they look at me like, you're not at a car dealership here. <laughs> My dad does that. I'm telling you, he's done that at like shoe I, stores. I, it's so embarrassing. I should. Do, I mean, when I'm buying like a, a just an individual soda for $2.39 at the local variety store. No, you store. have to know where to 
can't do it. You I want to offer the, the guy mall. a buck 80. I'm like, come on. This no. is just going to sit here on the shelf, this Diet Dr. Pepper. You give this to me for 40 cents less right now. (laughs) No, that's not how it works. Thanks so much for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We will be back tomorrow with a live show on 640 Toronto. You can check us out there, 640toronto.com, or the Radio Player Canada app, or right back here where you found us. And feel free to subscribe, share with others. We want to uh, spread the word about what we're doing on Toronto Today. Thanks again for listening.